Hey, hey, how's everybody doing? My name is Christian Wagner, and I'm the Militant Thomist. So, my excuse for being late today. I feel like I have to do this every day. Uh, maybe I should just start scheduling streams five minutes later than I do. There's something in my eye. It's terrible. Well, I saw on the floor, because as many of you know, um, I was backing out of my driveway the other well somebody was backing out of my driveway in my wife's car and might have happened to have backed into a tree and might have happened to break the glass in the back window so this caused my wife to have to clean out the car uh, from some of the glass shards while i was sleeping today because you know night shift and she happened to find my my laptop stand in there so I do not have to put my laptop on a pile of books now in order to uh, in order to stream. So I was setting that up. That's what I was doing. So before we get started in this q and I'll let you guys build up some questions in the chat. Just ask anything, anything you have. I will, I will answer any question. I will go over my sponsor. So this show was brought to you by Fluent Greek. Now, many of you do not speak Greek, and if you do speak Greek and went to seminary, let's be honest, you don't remember your Greek. But FluentGreekNT.com, they use state-of-the-art technology. When it comes to the natural method, you know, the natural method of, of language learning, you learn to read, basically, and basically, you learn to speak the language and read the language like a kid would. So they just shoot before your eyes. A, um, a bunch of verses from the New Testament, one at a time, easiest verb form to hardest verb form, and you just translate. You can click if, and gloss a word if you don't know it. It's it's just a really good tool. And if you use the code militant, it's 20% off. And you may be asking, well, how much is it, Christian? This seems like it would be a million-dollar tool. No. Using the code militant, you can get it for $12 a month. It is a steal. And then if you go to the description below, I have that link for Flown Creek in there, but you'll see two people have asked me, people ask me on a weekly basis, what are those intro songs that you have? Well, if you look down there, there's two links to two YouTube videos, and they have my intro songs from the Pius X intro and from this intro that I use. And then also from the, uh, what, what is that? Would be an extra? What would the end of it be called? Outro. I guess it'd be an outro. Yeah, but they're they're both in that that link. And then also, don't forget, become a patron at patreon.com slash militantomist if you would like to help me out and to help me uh, do a lot more stuff than I normally do. I have a I have plenty of ideas in this brain right here, but I need time to do it. So help me to uh, get more time to be able to do it. Then don't forget to subscribe. Hit that note that Nell notification, that bell notification, and to thumbs up this video, comment on it, you, you know, you know, the whole nine yards, and then you can, you can follow me on all the links below, listen on podcast and um, buy a book and a mug and you, you know how it all works. So I will get straight to the questions. <laughs> Does it show I'm a patron? No, I tried. I'm, I'm very mad. Um, I tried to get it to where all my patrons would show. I need to. I need to try it again. I need to research it or something. 
Maybe I just need a sticky note with all of the YouTube names of my patrons right here. So I know, um, I know who to answer the questions of first, but no, it does not. It does not show that for me. Unfortunately, I will need to figure that out. Okay. So I will go all the way up. So, hey, Christian, how do we respond to critics of the five ways who claim they don't work on their own and are uh, parasitic to the argument from De Ente et Essentia? Um, I, I'm not sure. Uh, so so putting, putting arguments for the existence of God in context. So as, as Romans 1 teaches, uh, we can know something of God from creation. Now, St. Thomas would say that we can't know um, of the essence of God from creation. But we can only know of the existence of God from creation, um, reasoning uh, from effects to causes. And this can be a necessary argument. But what arguments of God, um, arguments for God, and then if, if I'm not answering your question, you can, you can put a follow-up in there. But what arguments for the existence of God does is it renders man inexcusable, and then it gives some sort of uh, natural knowledge of the existence of God. Now, this isn't divine faith. That's something that needs to be, it's an infused habit that needs to be infused um, into us uh, by grace um, to say that we can come to divine faith through arguments for the existence of God um, would be uh, blasphemous. So what St. Thomas does really with his arguments for the existence of God is he sets it up um, in an apologetic manner that renders people inexcusable. And he, and especially in the Summa Theologi, Theologi, Theologia or Theologica, whoever, however you want to say it, um, I, I, I don't, I need the, I need the one day research uh, why there's the, the differing spellings. But um, so um. I lost my train of thought. Yeah, the way that he's the way that he's setting it up is the knowledge that we can know from nature, then the knowledge we need to know from from revelation. So, in that context of it being a um, an argument which renders inexcusable, rather than being an argument which um, which gives divine faith somehow, it it really shows the reasonableness of the faith. So, I I I don't know if that answers your question at all. Um, but yes, they don't work on their own. If, if that's, uh, what you mean by they don't work on their own, uh, not sure. Okay. Shroud of Turin, real question mark. Yes. The Shroud of Turin is real. Yeah. The Shroud of Turin, that was something, um, as a brief backstory, when I was in my like charismatic evangelical church growing up. They had a huge thing of, they had like a reprint. I, I don't know how to describe it other than a reprint. Some sort of reprint of the Shroud of Turin. And they had it in the nave of the church. It was very interesting. Um, and then my pastor, uh, he went on this whole like like 45 minute long sermon on why the Shroud of Turin's real. Like looking at the pollen types and the blood types and looking at like uh, the way in which the marks were made and everything like that. It's really cool. It's really cool stuff. I definitely think the Shroud of Turin is real. I am a firm believer in the Shroud of Turin, but I'm also a firm believer in all um, medieval artifacts. I think every single one of the uh, splinters of the True Cross 
you know, Luther would make fun of them saying that you could like make like a hundred true crosses out of the splinters of the true cross. No, nah, I think they're all real. They were all like multiplied or something. I don't know. I, I, I'm just a firm, firm believer in our patrimony. I think um, pseudo Dionysius is actually Dionysius. I think Athanasius wrote the Athanasian Creed. I, I'm, I'm definitely a, um, a lover of, of myth. I think, I think the Saint Luke painting the icon of the Virgin Mary, absolute believer in that. But, but ironically, some of them, some of them, unironically, like the Athanasius and Dionysius thing, it's unironic. But with like the Saint Luke painting the icon, that's actually ironic. Oh yeah. And then for my um sparkling water today, it's aha citrus plus green tea caffeinated um sparkling water. So this isn't the best. Uh the, I'll I'll give it like a six out of ten. It's not like the other one where I, I actually the uh the cherry limeade clear American. That one was delicious. Favorite C.S. Lewis book. Um I would say the screw tape letters. I, I really do enjoy the screw tape letters. I'm not like a huge like C.S. Lewis uh, simp like a lot of people. A lot of people just love like he is he is the only canonized Anglican in their minds is C.S. Lewis. But I'm not I'm I'm not the biggest uh, biggest C.S. Lewis uh, fan. But I have I did used to have um, like an eight volume kind of uh, set of C.S. Lewis works that I read through. And uh, I mean, he's not terrible. He's able to, he's a great communicator. I'll, I'll leave it at that. Actually, now that I think of it, I really like discarded image too. Uh, th those two screw tape letters, then discarded image. Because discarded image uh, really helped me with understanding the way in which the medieval world works because he was a um, medievalist by, by trade. So I, I really did enjoy that one too. Okay, recently I've been discussing things with a Spinoza-style rationalist who has argued that attributing intelligence to God contradicts divine simplicity because intelligence requires multiplicity. How would you respond to such an objection? It's a really good, really good question. So I did actually write an article, if you go to my website, christianbwagner.com, on the mode of divine knowledge. So this problem was... Uh, because uh, basically the problem goes back to the fact that if you have an intelligence, um, when it comes to uh, knowing certain truths, you have a multiplicity of objects in knowing uh, truths. Therefore, it would require some sort of multiplicity in the source is you can't have a simple source who is contemplating multiple objects. So the way in which the medievals dealt with this and the way in which St. Thomas in particular dealt with this was to say that God knows all things in his essence. We can think of it like um, that God knows himself. And then since he is the source of all things and since um, all things have their origin and their type in the divine intelligence, that in knowing his essence, so also... Um, because all things are virtually contained in his essence, he knows those objects. So uh, the way in which God um, might know this this can right here is the fact that uh, this can, um, the idea of this can is virtually contained in his essence because he is the creator. Um, uh, he is the, at least the first cause of the existence of this can. So that's that's the way in which uh, St. Thomas dealt with this objection. I don't know if that would be satisfactory to your uh, Spinozan friend, but 
That's just the way Thomas did it. Okay, you've been exposed as a baby controlling the body of a full-grown adult like a puppet. I demand an explanation for this. Yeah, for those of you who do not know, Dende, let me see. This is from the Discord. If you guys, uh, let me let me see. Can I copy a link? I'm trying to see if I can show this. So this morning, is it going to pop up? Yep, it will. Okay. So I'm going to share my screen real quick so I can explain myself. So this morning I was on VC with Trendy and Dende. And my son got a hold of my phone and he was playing with it. I was trying to write. Uh, I'm in the middle of writing a, uh, a bit of an essay on the Thomistic view of papal heresy. Very fun, very fun. Um, and he was, he was uh, a little upset, so he likes to just grab stuff and play with it. And he just happened to grab my phone, which was sitting there while I was on VC. And, um, he, uh, he decided to grab it. Um, he tried to eat it. Yep. There he is. He was just, uh, he was just taking my phone and then playing with it and he tried to eat my phone. So. That is that is what happened. Okay. So I promise I promise I am not a uh, a baby controlling a man's body. Okay. Okay. Can you explain the Genesis one and two talk about Adam made before slash after creatures? That is a good question. I will. KJV. Yes, I'm using the KJV because ordinary gang. Seed and cope. So I will show the um, my screen so you can see the, the verses that I will be covering. Okay, so let's see. So obviously in the beginning God created. Oh, wait, no, no, no. Genesis 2 and 3. Did he say one and two? I think he means two and three. No, 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 one and two. Okay. So with Genesis one, so it's the days and it's going to be days. So he talks about the creation, bam, of all the beasts of the earth. And then he says, and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image in the image of God. He created them male and female. He created them. And then in Genesis 2. So thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had made. He blessed the seventh day. And then, boom. And then it talks about these are the generations of the heavens of the earth when they were created. So this is very important. These are the generations of the heavens of the earth. So you can see uh, when we're reading, yes, yes, I know. When we're reading through Genesis, uh, this of generations is extremely important because this kind of breaks up Genesis uh, for us into little pieces. You see it throughout the entire narrative 
of um, of really uh, the the entirety of Genesis. You'll see these are the generations, blah blah blah. So this is clearly splitting off Genesis one and two as talking about something different. Because remember, there was no chapter divisions in the original um, Bible when Moses wrote Genesis. There was not these fancy little chapter and verse divisions. So then this talks about. Um, so when it, in, in Genesis 2, when it starts to talk about the Garden of Eden, the creation, the midst of the garden, placing man, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, river went out. So I think the best explanation that I've heard is that Genesis 1 is talking generally um, about the creation of, of the universe. It's speaking of it in general terms. And if you notice, if you compared um, the first day to the sixth day, the second day to the fifth day, the third day to the fourth day, it's making some theological points about, uh, I, I personally, in my in my reading of Genesis 1, uh, while obviously um, I believe that it's either instantaneous or over uh, seven 24-hour days, because um, I like the church fathers, and I care about the history. Um, I'm just, I'm, I'm joking. If, if you were, if you didn't get that, but um, so, so I believe that uh, it was, it was very intelligently placed um, in order to show the uh, creation and then the filling, creation, filling, creation, filling, and then crown of creation on day six. So that's that's talking in general terms about creation in in Genesis one, and then in Genesis two, rather than contradicting that. It's telling about something else. It's talking about the creation specifically of the Garden of Eden. So it's going from uh, general to particular. So if that is helpful, I hope that's helpful. How's sacramental life? Uh, sacraments are the best. I tell you, if you're not Catholic, you're missing out on the sacraments. They're amazing. Uh, did you see Pope Francis comment on the ARCIC? He wants full unity with the Anglicans and putting the pressure on them. ARCIC? What is the ARCIC? Oh, that's the, uh, the Anglican uh, Roman Catholic International Commission. Interesting. I did not see any news about that. Let me check in news. Oh, three days ago. Interesting. Let me share my screen from this article that popped up. We love we love this around here. Anglicans are valued traveling companions. Uh, cringe, cringe. Uh, Anglican Archbishop Linda. <laughs> Archbishop Linda, bruh. Archbishop Linda. Very sad. That Anglicans are valued traveling companions. Yikes. Um. Yeah, I'm. I'm just not gonna. I'm not going to really comment on that. It's kind of, I, I don't know how I feel about that. Um, I, I don't think I'm really qualified to even comment on that, honestly. So I, I probably won't. Yeah, but uh, but that comment is a bit annoying. But I'm I'm glad if there's if there's going to be full 
beautiful unity like that. Obviously not against it. Okay, since you're an Anglophile, France or Germany? Obviously Germany, dude. My family came over here from Germany in 1720 to live in South Central Pennsylvania. And they didn't move outside of South Central Pennsylvania until the 1950s when my grandfather moved to uh, join the Air Force. So I am uh, I am a German um, lover. <laughs> Got to be careful with how you phrase things. Okay. So how would you respond? If someone genuinely wills something, they will do everything in their power to bring about. Thus, if God genuinely wills the salvation of all men, uh, therefore he will bring uh he will do everything in his power to bring it about okay that's a great question uh i think saint thomas is going to put it better than me and since i know the section off the top of my head i will just pull that up so it's going to be in summa theologiae um prima pars question 23 article 3 i want to say yes article 3 in response to objection 1 okay here it goes I'll share my screen real quick. Okay. So the way St. Thomas is going to answer this is so the objection up here is a, it's about reprobation. So this is a kind of what, um, kind of what you're saying. It seems that God reprobates no man for nobody reprobates what he loves, but God loves every man. According to wisdom, 1125, thou lovest all things that are and thou hatest none of the things thou hast made. Therefore God reprobates no man. So, reply to objection one. God loves all men and all creatures inasmuch as he wishes them all some good, but he does not wish every good to them all. So far, therefore, as he does not wish this particular good, namely eternal life, he is said to hate or reprobate them. So, St. Thomas, and he, there's another section, and I... And actually, I want I want to find it. It's so good that I need to find it. There's another section where he shows how actually we ought to read those sections, which seem to imply that God has an efficacious will to the salvation of all men. Um, mm -hmm. Okay, let's see. Sorry about this. Okay. Yeah, I don't think it's this one either. Okay. I think it might be under this one. No, it isn't. What in the world? Dang, this is annoying. Why can't I find... Oh, maybe it is. Okay, I'm just going to check for like one more minute. Because this is, this is annoying that I can't find it. Dang, I'm being, I'm being debunked right now. That I can't find it. Off the top of my head. 
Oh dang, I can't find it. Oh wait, wait, no, no, no. <laughs> okay, I promise it's it's in it's in question question twenty one. Okay, I promise. I promise, guys. Dang, I got a lot of dead air going here. Come on, come on. Bruh, did I just... Oh, wait, wait, no, no, no. It's trust me. <laughs> trust me. It's... Oh, yes, I know. I know now. It's under the will of God. Trust me. I'll just look at this one. Whether the will of God is always fulfilled. There you go. Objection answer to objection one. You know, I'm not I'm so confident I'm just gonna read objection one. So it seems that the will of God is not always fulfilled, for the apostle says God wills all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, but this does not happen, therefore the will of God is not always fulfilled. Okay, here we go. So I think this is going to and this is gonna be a little bit uh this answer is gonna take a little bit, so I probably won't be able to actually get to all the questions in the chat. So if you really, 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 really want your question answered, then uh throw in a super chat and I'll make sure I answer it. So the words of the apostle, God wills will have all men to be saved, can be understood in three ways. First, by restricted application, in which case they would mean as Augustine says, God wills all men to be saved that are saved not because there is no man whom he does not wish saved, but because there is no man saved whose salvation he does not will. So he would say that this means um, God wills will have all men to be saved, but that means that, um, that uh, all men who are saved, he wills to be saved, not necessarily that all men are, that he wills the salvation of all men. Second, they can be understood, and this is actually the best reading, I think, Second, they can be understood as applying to every class of individuals, not to every individual of every class, in which case they mean that God wills some men of every class and conditions to be saved, male and female, Jew and Gentiles, great and small, but not all of every condition. And I think that makes the most sense if you're going to read um, uh, first, first Timothy. Yeah, if this is in First Timothy 2. So if you read First Timothy 2 in context, uh, St. Paul has a lot of this like category language um, going going on here. And really that verse is a justification for why you should pray for every single type of man. So you should pray for kings. You should pray for, um, I can't remember the exact people that he outlines in that section. You should pray for kings. You should pray for governors. You should pray for uh, workers. You should pray for um, I don't know. You should, you should pray for people in the military. You should pray for all these people because God wills that um, all men to be saved, not just, um, I don't know, farmers to be saved. So if since he's speaking in, uh, in terms of uh, genus, you can say that, well, what he means here is that God does not restrict himself to a particular genus. So he doesn't only will the salvation of the Jews, he also wills the salvation of the Gentiles. Now, just because it says that he wills the salvation of the Jews and Gentiles doesn't mean that he wills the salvation of every Jew and every Gentile. That would be um, that would be a mistake uh, to to say that that's just not how uh, language works. When we think about when we name genuses, uh, we would say some from that genus if uh, if we don't qualify every from that genus. So uh, you you could uh, you could actually rightly say um, some from every class rather than every um, 
every every person and that's how uh saying that's how uh i at least um i think is the most convincing a uh, way to but third is also another pretty good way of going about it third according to damascene they are understood of the antecedent will of god not of the consequent will this distinction must not be taken as applying to the divine will in which there is nothing antecedent nor consequent but to the things willed so uh this distinction between the antecedent and consequent will the the illustration which i've at least heard used and i think is a good one is if you have a judge and the judge is going to court and the judge says i do not wish to kill any man today or i do not wish that any man should die today he could rightly say that and then let's say he's he's sitting on the on the bench and you actually have good justice and there's somebody who's like a serial killer who who comes in and then he um approves for the death sentence for this serial killer well antecedently before the consideration of having a serial killer he could rightly say yeah i don't wish uh death today but since uh consequently in consideration of of um of serial killing uh he does actually wish that so in in a similar way we can speak of antecedent and consequent will when it comes to the objects of salvation antecedently before the giving of grace he does not wish that that um any man should be saved i mean uh, i i i mix that up uh antecedently um before um the before uh going into sin he could say yeah i don't wish any man to be damned um, i wish all men to be saved but consequently after the consideration of the fall and of sin he could say like yeah there are um there are some w who i do not elect so um yeah, and then he just explains what antecedent and consequent means. Okay, I hope that was helpful. I feel like that was a very bumbling answer. Uh, let's see. So, would you consider debating barely Protestant, who is an Anglican? Uh, no, um we're 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 good we're good chaps so not on anglicanism but uh we've we've discussed uh debating molinism versus thomism because i'm a thomist and he's a molinist so we've considered that so the council of florence clearly teaches the athanasian creed was really written by athanasius big if true Okay, is that Sparkling Water sponsoring the show? I need to I need to contact them, but I don't think. Uh, let's see who distributes this. Coca Cola. Everything is owned by Coca Cola, guys. Uh, I don't think I don't think they would be too interested, but um, I would uh, I would be up for it. Cardinal Manning versus Saint Newman. Whose writings do you prefer? You know, you know, I'm a radical Newmanite. I prefer the writings of St. Newman. But it's when it comes to Cardinal Manning, I mean, if he wrote like, let, let's say if he wrote like scholastic treatises on, on stuff, and I might actually like him more. It's just the stuff that we do have from him. It's basically his his Petrine privilege is about all. And then he has some uh, pastoral and uh, pastoral works and sermons and such.
So St. Newman just has a lot more to choose from, if, if that makes sense. So didn't Spinoza think God has an inf absolute infinite thought and an infinite extension? Yes. Uh, yes, he did, because he goes, he's going off of um, Descartes' philosophy of thought and extension. Wait, Dende tried to eat what? No, no, no. Dende didn't try to eat anything. My my son tried to eat my phone. Did I say Dende tried to eat my phone? No, no, no. Dende didn't. Dende tried to expose me. Dende told everybody I was actually a uh, a baby living in a grown man's body, which is clearly a lie. Okay, now they're talking about Spinoza in the chat. Okay, I can't remember if I asked this, but is your bishop still responsible for your soul if you become a citizen of another country? What if the country doesn't have the right you partake of, like Byzantine or ordinary? Well, I guess I'm kind of in an, um, an analogous situation because I, I'm in North Carolina and my nearest ordinary parish, well, not even a parish, it's a community right now who's seeking to become a parish is like two hours away. So technically my bishop is Bishop Lopes of the ordinariate, but I don't uh, go to his masses, uh, the masses of the ordinariate too often. Um, usually once a month, I mean, sometimes it just doesn't work out and it's every other month. Uh, it just, it just depends. So, I mean, I, I'm kind of in that situation, but yeah, they would still be responsible um, as long until you uh, until you uh, canonically transfer. Why KJV militant Protestant? I like the KJV. It's part of my liturgical patrimony as an as an English Catholic. It is part of my liturgical patrimony. So there, there's nothing wrong with the KJV. You can see the cope if you don't like the KJV. I, I, there's there's nothing wrong with it. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I've never. I've never found anything I don't like about it. And they knew Greek a lot better than I do, so I can't really judge the translation skills, anyways. Did man merely discover the form of things that are man-made, like a can, or did man create the form? Um. Yeah, because it would be, it, it's like we can create um, artificial, it's like uh, the difference between artificial and natural signs. I guess we could say the difference between artificial and natural forms is like, uh, let me try to think of something. Um, oh, tobacco. This tobacco right here, um, it has the natural form of tobacco. But this can right here has the artificial form of can. So that, I guess that's the distinction that would be made between artificial and natural forms so yeah we would we would we wouldn't have merely discovered the form of it hi kjv is a decent translation to be honest exquisite english don't get christian started on the topic of creation or i'm gonna have to dunk on him again nah dude you got dunked on 
you absolutely got dunked on. So Nox is probably my favorite translation for narrative reason reading. Yeah, Nox is pretty good too. All of all of those guys, like men men who were born before like eighteen hundred and were scholars, were just on a completely different level. Like even the heretics were smarter than the most brilliant theologians that we have nowadays. They're just built different. And Knox, um, he was an Anglican priest who became a Catholic, but he he just did an amazing, amazing job translating. So, what publisher of the KJV with the Deutero Canon did you get? I just got the, I just bought the Deutero Canon separately. Actually, I don't think I still have it. Because yeah, I'm being a LARPer right now. Because actually, I use I use the Dewey Reams. For my own reading, uh, my Bible is not on my desk right now. I, I kind of look like a LARPer right now. I just don't read my Bible, I guess. What do you think of Bonaventure? He's pretty. He's pretty cool. He's pretty cool. Uh, there's not much of him trans. Well, not much of his theological work translated. I mean, I have the PDFs of his um, of his sentences commentary, but it didn't have the parts that I wanted. So. I mean, he he's but he's he's just not on the level of like a Saint Thomas, because that that just wasn't Bonaventure's life. Bonaventure was was a mystic, and he was a he was an ecclesiastical man. He was the head of the Franciscans, so he just had a lot of responsibilities and didn't have much room for study. So he didn't pr produce like eighty volumes like Saint Thomas did throughout his life. He's just a different type of guy, but he's still pretty. He's still an amazing guy. I am curious what you think about Augustine's view of Genesis one and why it's wrong, or why you're wrong if you think he isn't wrong. Okay. Um. Honestly, I think Augustine's right uh, when it comes to Genesis one. I think he's right. I think creation was instantaneous in that Genesis, Genesis 1 is just talking about um, the sort of logical ordering of how creation happened, making a certain theological point. I, I believe I'm a, I'm a firm believer in instantaneous creation. Makes the most sense to me. And uh, I'm incoming hate from Byzantine, Byzantine Scotist. Man, I'm 20 minutes behind in the chat. I need to. Okay, so essentially we'd reject the premise that God genuinely wills the salvation of all men. It depends. Um, it depends on what you mean by genuinely. Um, yeah, it depends on what you mean by genuinely. Um, we, we, but we would need to qualify uh, very strictly that statement of God willing the salvation of all men that needs to be, that needs to be qualified. But when we're, when we're talking about the, the great mysteries of God, um, that, that language can, can become, um, not satisfying. But I mean, when you're, when you're on the street talking to people or yeah, because when it, this, Okay, so the 
even in even in reformed authors that I've read, which is obviously most of what I've read about uh, predestination, because um, I, I did I did do a lot of a lot of reading and writing about um, reformed scholastic uh, views of reprobation and predestination, and everybody says almost everybody has a little section on like at the beginning of their chapters on how you shouldn't talk about predestination and reprobation very much that that's that's like a a a section in almost everybody's book is they say like hey this is all we're going to cover uh in your pastoral ministry or in in whatever you do talking to the guy on the street do not discuss this stuff very often just this this is what people are interested in and it leads to a lot of vanity like discuss other things but don't don't discuss this a bunch because people get a little bit obsessive about it. So the guy on the street, um, yeah, I have uh, no problem uh, saying that God wills his salvation or tell him that that God uh, wills his salvation. But when you start applying that uh, too strictly without making the proper negations that are required um, in in human modes, uh, you can you can. Uh, you can have an anthropomorphic view of of God. That's a that's a very big danger of just God's up there longing and not fulfilling what He can do, and He's and He's weeping and crying because He can't um, He can't fulfill those things and, and and so on and so forth. It can it can lead to an anthropomorphic view, but for for the general um, layman who isn't going to take this uh, super strictly, but he's going it's going to be communicating to him something that's true. Although that's not, it's not exhaustive in all of its distinctions. And I think that's very helpful. Um, the early church and uh, even St. Thomas talks about this in his, uh, in his commentary on Dionysius's divine names, that you have to be very careful um, the type of language you're using in theology. Like when you're talking to the average layman, you might not want to bring up um, simplicity or you might not want to bring up uh, a lot of a lot of issues because it's just going to do more to confuse and to not be able to communicate uh, truth as clearly as some of those less correct statements where you have to make more negation but they have more punch to them and that's also something to remember when reading scripture is that when we're reading scripture um, a lot of times when it is talking about divine realities um, it's using um it's using language which is accommodated to the average hearer because it wasn't written for um, scripture wasn't written for for uh, Saint Thomas Aquinas brains. It was written for fishermen and uh, farmers, and it 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 was written to be able to communicate truth to them. So a lot of times when we're doing theology, we have to be careful to to recognize that uh, with with sacred scripture, not uh, turn into um, some weird sort of literalists who are going to say like, okay, it talks about um, God's uh, right arm of power. I guess God has a right arm um, and he has, he has a body and and such. Uh, That that's just, that's just not the way of thinking about it, but it is communicating something which is true, uh, which you have to make negations about, which is the fact that God acts very strongly. So it, it puts that image in the mind of the listener of some arm of power so uh there there is really two levels that you need to work on is is the level of of uh, practical preaching teaching talking about god and also the level of okay um 
what are the more correct ways that we can we can speak, uh, but the more obscure ways in which we can speak. So I think I think those principles are especially helpful when it comes to speaking about this issue. Respond, uh, respondeo, a responsioi. Yeah, I guess it would be correct. To those who claim that Aquinas would join the Reformation. That is that is a great question. Um, so, I'm trying to think of the, the best, the best response. The issue is going to come in. I, sometimes I just think it's too abundantly obvious to even respond to it. Because, I mean, I, I was in those circles, and I still am in those circles. I have a lot of friends who would say that Aquinas would have joined the Reformation if once he realized that all of these forgeries and stuff. Um, but I think he wouldn't because he had the virtue of faith. Un unironically, that's my answer. That's my answer. Because I mean, what, what, what? Do you, how are you going to answer these people? I could say that, like, if I, I don't know, John Calvin, if if he would have read, uh, actually would have read Saint Thomas, or Martin Luther, if he actually would have read Saint Thomas, or would have been a Dominican, then they would never have have joined the Reformation. If if Luther was a Dominican and not an Augustinian, you you can you can speculate all day, however you want. Um, it's just uh, one of those really weird what ifs. But just reading uh, St. Thomas should make it plain that after uh, the first half of Prima Pars, uh, things start to get um, radically, um, you, you get a radical discontinuity between the two. Oh man, it keeps, keeps shooting me down for some reason. Okay. Okay, historically. Okay, good question. Historically, if there was a war that could be settled by duel to save a large number of lives, would the duel be permitted under the general auspices of war, assuming it fulfilled just war's criteria? Hmm. That's a good question. Given the church's teaching on duels, yes, uh, I would I would have to think, because usually the the specific context of the church's teaching on duels has to do with like private private duels that it's condemning. I don't know about like uh, some sort of uh, representative duel, because I guess technically um, that wouldn't be a true duel, because a true duel would have to do with like some sort of personal um personal sort of uh issue that one person has with another but i guess in the situation you you outlined that wouldn't even really be a duel because basically each one of the participants would be representative of the whole in which they are fighting for so it would really be like a war in miniature like that would be like asking uh, let's let's say that there was three oh my there's barking Let's say there was like three or five people on each side who were fighting. Would that be wrong? 
Well, I would, I would, I would say no because that would just be a small battle. So when you have one person representing the whole army, how does it make it different than the entire army fighting? Because really, the one person is like kind of recapitulating the entire army in his own person as a representative. So I don't. I, I think they it would be distinct from from dueling. Uh, if I if I had to if I had to make a a quick moral judgment on that issue, if I if I was thinking. So that that that's what I think is I don't think I, I think the way in which we can get out of it is to say that it's not actually a duel, that it's really more like a small battle just with with two people who happen to be representing the entire army. What should be done with gay people? Um, that's a good question. That is a really good question because there's a lot of distinctions that need to be made. So as a private Christian, and I'm, I'm assuming so um, by gay people, you're talking about people that are active sodomites. That, that's just what I'm going to gloss gay people as. I'm not talking about some weird sort of like identity thing or some some weird sort of, uh, I, I don't even know, like when you have the like nine-year-old say that they're, they're gay or whatever, um, then and it's, it's, it's really silly. Uh, so I'm going to gloss that as just active sodomites. So what should be done with active sodomites? So first as a private um, Christian, it's, it would be a similar response as you would have to, um, to, to most people who are outside of the church. So it would be a response of the call to repentance um, and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That would be the response to have. And then secondly, we consider, cons we, bleh, I can speak, I promise. We can consider the response of, of the magistrate, of the Catholic magistrate. So you have a Catholic king. Uh, what should he do about uh, sodomites in his kingdom? Well, first, there is the, the there's the principle of the good of the part and then the good of the whole. So let's say we have tomorrow a Catholic president, an actual Catholic president who who becomes like if I became president tomorrow, uh, would would I instantly um, criminalize sodomy and start uh, executing sodomites? No, no, that's not what I would do. Because that would not be for the good of the whole. Um, it would, in seeking to uh, seek a certain particular good, would do damage to the to the entire good. It's like when Augustine, Saint Augustine, and Saint Thomas Aquinas talk about uh, legalizing prostitution. The fact that it should be legalized, or else um, adultery would would multiply throughout the world. So it's that it's that same idea that you would do more damage than good. Um, if you were to do it at such like instant um, shock value, especially in our culture. So it would require um, time and changing, but the end goal uh, in incomplete justice would be um, very, a, a very strict criminalization, um, uh, preferably and historically um, capital punishment for sodomy. So, but, but good question. Oh, that's not what you asked. By that, I mean, how do we combat them? Oof. Yeah. Uh. Yeah, I, I'll just leave my answer stand. <laughs> I'll just leave my answer stand. Why do you prefer the KJV over the, the DR? 
Um, so I'm just, it's just what I'm used to. And that's kind of the purpose of the ordinariate is whatever, um, liturgical, the, the liturgical patrimony of Anglicanism would be, uh, Catholicized. But I use the Dewey reams because that's just, uh, when, when it comes to private reading, um, so I've actually kind of switched over, but I still prefer the KJV because I think KJV's English is better. No, the Immaculate. So I need to do the only times Thomas was debunked, delayed insolment, the Immaculate Conception. I need to do a video on the Immaculate Conception because Lagrange has like a really nice article on the Immaculate Conception, Thomas's view on it. And if you if you read John of St. Thomas, John of St. Thomas thought that um, thought that St. Thomas didn't even deny the Immaculate Conception. So get trolled. Oh yeah, New Cambridge Bible with the Apocrypha. Yes, that's the best one. Bonaventure dunks on Augustine's view of Genesis 1 so hard because that's how you should handle when Augustine is rarely wrong. Bonaventure. Oh, man. I'm not prepared to answer this question. <laughs> Are there any key differences between how St. Thomas Aquinas defines virtual distinctions and how uh, Blessed John and Scotus defines formal distinctions? I've tried to so I've tried to ask Byzantine Scotus this exact question and harass him about it be like is it is it before the consideration of the intellect well then it's a real distinction is it after the consideration of the intellect then it's with a foundation uh, with a fundamentum in re with a foundation of the thing well then it's a virtual distinction like you do there you, you like Lagrange Lagrange talks about this like what the heck is Scotus talking about? Like you have to, it's either before or after the consideration of the intellect. Like you're either talking about a type of virtual distinction or you're talking about a real distinction. So I I've I've tried to harass Byzantine Scotus about it. Maybe one time I'll get him on so I can have him live in person to uh, to display my ignorance before everybody. But yes, I have the same exact question as you. So so uh, thank you for reminding me. Mr. Wagner, Mr. Benedictus Intellectus. Okay, Will Bulema versus Desire Thalema. Former is properly active while the latter is a desire, but not necessarily active. In 1 Timothy 2, God desires all men to be saved. You know what? I was, when I was learning Greek, uh, Thalema was glossed, Will. And bolima was gloss desire. So I think you might have these mixed up. But uh, who am I? You probably know Greek better than me. Give me one second. Lexi's being weird right now and watching me. Well, yeah, because I've been sleeping. You could have just watched me while I slept. Ew. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. 
So if you have any questions for Lexi, she's here. So question, would you agree the third wave scholastics just weren't on the same level as the first and second wave? What do you mean by third wave scholastics? Because um, because the language is used uh, diversely in literature. So one guy's third wave scholastic is another guy's first wave scholastic. Okay, greatest theologian between 1800 and 1950, Gary Gu, Lagrange, Sheban. It might be one of the Roman congregation guys. I've been uh, reading, uh, I've been practicing my Latin every day and reading a little bit of Franzelin in his De Deo Trino, and it's, it's some really good stuff. So maybe one of the Roman congregation guys. I don't know. I've been uh, I've been talking with uh, a certain person in the in the Discord recently about the Roman congregation theologians like Perone, uh, Frangelin, et al. So I'm not I'm not sure who would the best one be, but tentatively it would be uh, Gary Lagrange, obviously. Yes, I know St. Thomas disagrees with Augustine on instant creation. You don't have to tell me that. I know. That is, I've, well, well, it's hard to say that St. Thomas disagrees with St. Augustine on anything. Because he'll just read St. Augustine and try try his hardest to, like, to uh, synthesize St. Augustine with the truth to say that St. Augustine actually believed uh, exactly what I believe. He tries when, when St. Augustine, uh, when he disagrees with him, which is not too, too much. He would try to say like, no, well, actually we, we agree just kind of technically on this. And this is what he was actually trying to say and such. So, I mean, a little bit and technically. So, Neither of those above two are as great as the first and second waves classics, I'd argue. Oh, so by first and second wave, I'm assuming first wave, you mean like Aquinas, Scotus, Bonaventure, like the medieval guys. By second wave, or, or maybe second wave would also include the late medieval um, school, school men. By second wave, you mean like um, like uh, Suarez, um, Banyas, Molina, uh, the Salamancans. You mean you mean like them? And by third wave, you mean like the Roman congregation guys, like uh, Lagrange, uh, Sheban. Um, yeah, I would. I, I don't know. I don't. I don't think I have enough expertise to even make a judgment. Because I've read. I've read some good um, third wave guys. What's the name of the Antiochian Orthodox guy critiquing Swan and Thomas? Uh, I don't know. Interesting. Do you ever talk about meta-ethics? Are you a moral realist? Seems to be more of a uh, a John Fisher 2.0 question. We did, a, we did an interview a while back on uh, moral realism. But I'm just a, I'm just a Catholic moral theologian. Um, well, when it comes to my moral theology, not that I'm a moral theologian, but I follow them, like uh, Saint Alphonsus Liguori. So, 
St. Thomas Aquinas. Henry Grenier. Uh, let me see if I can find anybody else. Oh, wait. Right here. I found it. The Bible. Yeah. So, I, I just follow generally um, the the Catholic tradition when it comes to, especially in, in the school of Thomism. But I can answer specific questions. But I'm not too familiar with analytic philosophy. If that's what you're asking. So I can't answer all these questions. I need to, I need to go up because it keeps pulling me down to the bottom. Uh, would you be willing to have a debate slash discussion with me about the proper interpretation of God's salvific will in Scripture? Yeah, I'm not I'm not your guy when it comes to the interpretation of sacred scripture. I mean Paul would be your guy there. I'm just I'm just not your guy when it comes to the Bible. I'm a I'm a dummy Catholic. We don't read the Bible. I'm joking. Yeah, that that's I mean people have people have uh, asked me whether I would would debate something like that, but I mean if you want to talk about the philosophical and theological issues about that, I'd be up for it. Luther never responded to John St. John Fisher's critique. St. John Fisher's critique went hard. It definitely went hard. And then St. John Fisher also destroyed Tyndale. He was a he was a monster. And you know, that's a uh St. John Fisher. I have a particular devotion to him. Because he was a married lay theologian is like your trads will get all mad about uh, married lay theology and that only um, religious should do or uh, priests in general should be doing theology. But St. John Fisher, he was a good example of a of a married lay theologian that wasn't um, in the modern day. Okay, uh, what is the ordinary at North American office book like? The Commonwealth edition is too expensive, which I, which is unfortunate because I'm Canadian. If you go to, I'm going to send you a link. Uh, okay, prayer.covert.org. This has all of the hours from the, from the, I think it's from the Commonwealth. No, no, this is from the, the North American. This is from the North American edition. But yeah, it's it's pretty it's pretty good. I mean, I don't have a physical copy. I've been asking for a physical copy forever. It's just they ran out of copies um, in Houston. So I haven't been able to get myself a copy yet. But I just uh, use the website. David and Goliath as a historian. You know what? David and Goliath. There you go. That's That's the example. King Christian the Great. <laughs> YouTube admins take note. Uh, let me see. By the way, your super chats aren't on. Yeah, I don't I don't know what's up with that. Somebody said that the other day. 
Let me mute. Oh, dividing line is live right now. I'm just going to go over into uh, into the dividing line stream and just live critique, live debunking James White. That'd be a fun time one time. Okay. Important notifications. Okay. Ugh. I received a copyright strike. What's the worst? Wait, no, no, no. It's a copyright claim. That's different. Okay. Okay, good. Okay, good. Let me check. What? Why did it turn them off? That's kind of silly. Okay, yeah, they're on now. Thank you for reminding me. Hey, somebody send me $100 just to test to make sure they're on. Okay. Do the saints hear your prayers when you are in mortal sin? Heard one say that they don't. That'd be in, that, that, that's an interesting question. The intercession of the, the saints while you're in mortal sin? I've never heard anybody treat this. But my... My guess would be no. The other poll, your distinction between Thale and Bulomenos collapses in Second Peter 3, 9, 10, when it is said that God wills Bulomenos that none, not perish but all repent. Yeah, St. Thomas's clear support for the Immaculate Conception is in his commentary on Peter Lombard's sentences. Yeah, that that was written when he was a when he was a bachelor student. So he was interestingly enough, like if you read Lombard his commentary on Lombard's sentences, it's insane, but he's like twenty six years old when he's writing that. When he finishes it. Yeah, I think he was twenty six when he finished it. So he was like in his like what do you what do you some of you are twenty six years old watching this? Have you written a commentary on Lombard sentences yet? No, you haven't. But um, yeah, he, he supports it. So the way in which Lagrange is going to talk about it is he supports it in his commentary on the sentences, denies it in his summa, and then right before his life, he changes his mind back again. But but who knows? I mean, this I, I've read um, his commentary on the Ave, which is what most people will point to, and it's not too convincing to me. Um, but I'll, I'll have to go deeper into Lagrange and all the uh, the people he cites. Okay. Based SCOTUS answers. Ugh. Cringe SCOTUS. What's in the fish tank? Oh, 
Yeah, for, for people who haven't been here since the beginning, I used to talk about him a lot more in the beginning. But uh, this right here, where is he? He's right there. That's Aquinas the fish. So Aquinas the fish right here. Is he? No, nah, he's not dead. Yeah. I used to talk about him a lot more, but that is the official fish of Militant Thomist. <laughs> Are you still going to that set of a contest parish? No, I've never been to a set of a contest parish. I think that would, you know, that would be an interesting experience. I want to go to like Mary's little remnant, find one of their parishes, like the most schizo set of a contest parish I could find. Wasn't St. Fisher. Oh, I was thinking about, man, I look like an idiot. St. Thomas More. St. Thomas More, who also did uh, responses to, uh, he did his responses to Wycliffe. I always mix the two up. Apologies. Apologies. You know, people are going to to, to clip that. Okay. How would an event as catastrophic as the Western Schism be analyzed in terms of culpability of laity, i.e. those laity who followed the wrong pope? How can we analyze their culpability? That is a great question. So first we have to so we have to recognize uh, a, pr a fundamental principle in moral theology, and Alphonsus Liguori talks about this, but between um, between the material aspects and the formal aspects of the act. So a materially sinful act can be um, something which is formally meritorious. So in the case of the Western schism, let's say you have somebody who is following the wrong Pope. That is a materially sinful act. So we do not have to say that it's good to follow the wrong Pope. No, it's bad to follow the wrong Pope during the Western schism. That, that is a very bad thing. And you shouldn't be doing that. But because of um, because of the fact that if, when we think about invincible ignorance, it's it is the denial of a den the denial to either learn or the denial to follow a known duty. Now, the known duty of following the pope was not known by anybody at that time, even like cardinals and canon lawyers. It was a very difficult question. It was almost impossible to know without the calling of Constance. So it is idiotic. It is almost idiotic to argue that anybody was going to be condemned for not knowing the, who the true Pope was because it was, it was imp almost impossible to know that duty. It was an impossibly difficult question. So while those who didn't follow the true Pope uh, would have been materially sinning, uh, they would not have been formally sinning because it was not they they were they could not have carried out that duty. And most laymen, uh, even most bishops, most heads of orders, most cardinals, like it was it was almost an impossible thing to know. That's how difficult of a question it was. I thought Christian for a second said he was Canadian. Ew. No. Okay. 
When will you lay down the Thomistic Hammer on all your Young Earth Creationist buddies? I'm about to lo- lay down the Thomistic Hammer on all of the Theistic Evolutionist buddies. I, 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 I don't, I don't get it. I've never gotten it when it comes to the the Thomistic, uh, the Thomistic appeal of of Theistic evolution. It it seems to be a fundamental um, error when it comes to the relationship between faith and reason and what is an object of faith like yes yes i know lagrange said that and i know uh and i, and I know a lot of even traditional dominican uh, Thomists in the early 20th century said it was possible i know i know i know but i still think it's a grave error uh, when it comes to the type of justifications that are seen about it and the direction in which it's gone so yes Oh, Paleocrat's here. Hello, Paleocrat. He is on Discord. Coolest theologian apart from Aquinas and Augustine. Do you want me to be super LARPy? Or do you want me to be serious? <laughs> if I was being super, LARP, super LARPy, I could... You know, I'm just going to say Father Lagrange. I'm just gonna say Father. I'm not gonna be LARPy. I'm gonna say Father Lagrange. I could be LARPy and then just like say somebody that I've like never read before. Be like, oh yeah, Cardinal Perone. He's so cool. <laughs> but I won't. Yeah. On the contrary, it is written, God built the rib which he took from Adam into a woman. I answered that it was right for the woman to be made from a rib of man. Yeah, it's pretty uh, straightforward. I was talking about the SSPX parish, I call it it, a set of a contest parish. Yeah, I'll go there like, it's the way I normally do things. I go to an ordinary parish, my ordinary parish once a month. Then I'll go there like once or twice a month. And then, I mean, sometimes things happen, wake up late and whatever. You just have to go to a uh, normal um, Nova Sordo parish, unfortunately. Okay, you never really answered your thoughts on epistemic authority and how you reconcile it with the Catholic Church on the stream with the other Paul. Is the papacy divine or human? It is divine. It is divine. Okay, what do you think is the mark of the beast? So with the mark of the beast, um, it's going to be something which is on uh, the hand and the the forehead. So if you look um, throughout the... Because you, you see the writer... Um, john the saint john the the divine in in the uh, the apocalypse of saint john he frequently draws from the old testament so the best place to look if you have any questions about what the apocalypse is talking about is you just look in the old testament so what else in the old testament talks about the forehead and the hand and if you go back to deuteronomy it talks about the um the forehead the, the law being written on the forehead and then the law being written on um, the hand, keeping it on your hand and your forehead, basically. So I think when it comes to uh, specifically what it's talking about is I don't think it's talking about a physical mark. 
what it is talking about is um, a uh, a kind of intellectual mark that's going on, if that makes sense. The mark of false knowledge and false learning and of the doctrine of the Antichrist. Yes, I did mix up St. John Fisher and St. Thomas More. What do you think the great apostasy, apostasy will entail, especially concerning the Holy See and the city of Rome? I don't know. Honestly, I do not know. That is a very obscure section in sacred scripture for me. I have no idea. Best works contra the Nouvelle Theologie. So if you want just a really quick one, uh, Father Lagrange has an article, Where is the New Theology Leading Us? That's, that is a great. You know what? Maybe I'll do a stream one of these days where I'll just uh, go over um, his article, Where is the New Theology Leading Us? I think that'd be a fun stream. Trolling the Nouvelle Theologie. So there you go. I just sent the link. That's a good like intro article to kind of kind of um, just know where the issues stand. Um, and then there is a book two. Um, I can't think of the name off the top of my head. You have to ask about me. Ask ask that to me later when I have a second. Because so I have the PDF, but. I did not, um, I have not read the PDF yet, but I've heard very good things and I skimmed through it and it seemed like it was going to be something good. That's specifically against De Lubac. I know that Manning and others did not believe that the apostolic see could fall into heresy, but couldn't imposter occupy the Holy See while also having a true Pope? I don't see why not. Um, I think that would be, uh, I, I I don't think that we'll ever ever uh, truly uh, that the apostolic see would fall into heresy. <sighs> I think you have to take some really schizo takes on that one. Not gonna lie. So, what is your role on the census today, especially if living under clearly erring bishops, uh, that is German bishops and sexuality? Yeah, when it comes to uh, issues of heresy, the inferior, that is the only, um, uh, as it is said in uh, Gratian's canons, um, Gratian's decretals, I'm sorry, in Gratian's decretals, um, in, uh, I'm trying to think, Distinction 40 maybe, but he says that heresy is the only crime for which an inferior can judge a superior. So if I was living under a bishop who was clearly preaching heresy, then you have the right and duty to uh, not obey them in that, but in everything else to give lawful obedience to them because they still have a valid and real jurisdiction until they are judged by the church. Three days of darkness, real or psyop. They were talking. Uh, I I had a few people in the in the VC arguing over this the other day. I don't know. It's it seems really schizo. Three days of darkness. I'm going to be perfectly honest. That's just my first thoughts. I haven't read into it. It just seems very schizo. 
but yeah, if you were if you were living under the German bishops, I don't think you are. But um, just don't partake in in their heresies, but to give them uh, lawful obedience until the Holy See deposes them. That's just what you have to do. Oh yeah, you were there, and uh, Boniface the Tenth was in there too. Oh, you bought the STS, very based. Are any of Perone's works available in English? The only thing I can think of in English is his comments on uh, St. John Henry Newman's um, on the evolution of Catholic dogma, <sighs> which is called <sighs> the Newman Perone paper, um, colloquially. That's the only thing I can think of in English, and it's out of print. But your boy has a copy of it somewhere around here. Yeah, I can't find it right now. Okay. Bro, here's some obscure prophecy. It's true. Okay. I think that I'm going to go. I should probably... My wife wants me. Probably dinner time. I will see you all tomorrow. And remember, it is Easter. And Christ has risen from the dead. Alleluia. Alleluia. Lord.